Well, good morning. My name is Kevin, and uh, I'm happy to be one of the pastors here at Woodside Detroit. Can we just give a round of applause to the band today for leading us so well? Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, man, it's really a privilege to be here with you this morning and to speak to you from God's word. Uh, we're in a little bit of an in-between Sundays, and what I mean by that is that we just finished a message series last week. Pat did a fantastic job closing us out, talking about built for more, built for community. And in a couple weeks, we're going to start a new series where we talk about unshakable. We're going to be spending time in First Peter, and so I definitely want to encourage you to come back with, uh, and join us in a couple weeks. Next week is a special treat. Another Pastor Chris will be joining us, and so I encourage you to come back for that as well. And so today, I've prepared a message for you today called the Vantage Point of Salvation. So why don't we pray and get started. Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you that you have made it. And so, God, we rejoice and we be glad in it because of that simple truth. I pray for the hearts and minds of those here, those watching with us, Father, that you would open them up to the truth of your word. God, make our hearts tender. Make our minds pliable to what you would have us to hear in this moment. And in this moment, Father, I ask that you would increase and that we would decrease. It's for your glory we're here. It's for your glory that we do what we do because you are great and you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I, I love going to the movies. I realize that that is not at all a thing we do now in, in light of the pandemic, in light of uh, things going on and restrictions and whatnot. But I hear that it's actually coming back, and so I'm pretty jazzed because I love the movie experience. I love actually going, sitting down. I love Twizzlers, so I get like a mound of those. I eat them at home all the time. My boys try to steal them from me. I'm very protective of my Twizzlers, but I love going to the movies, and it's, it's a great experience. I actually love movies with plot twists, right? I remember seeing the movie Sixth Sense. I actually can't even say it very well. But it's this movie where this child sees like dead people, right? And there's this big plot twist at the end. If you've seen it, great. If you haven't, I'm not spoiling it for you anymore. It's kind of an old movie, but I'm an old guy, so I focus on older movies. But I just love when the story changes, when, it, when you don't see it's coming. But I'm wondering, have you ever seen a movie where it did just that? It, the story changed. It shifted in a way you didn't expect or maybe even didn't like. I'm wondering what you thought in that moment. Maybe you thought, man, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm out of here. This is terrible. Or maybe you thought, man, if this was up to me, I would have done this entirely different. If it were up to me, I would have done this better. You know, I think that's, that kind of attitude or similar attitude is what plagued the Jews and the Gentiles in the New Testament in the first century. You know, despite all that Jesus did, the Jews and Gentiles didn't really get along all that well. They don't have a great relational history. And in many of his writings, the Apostle Paul writes in such a way that it gives us, gives us this window into their lives and their relationship. And he shows us with really distinct clarity that they really didn't have any unity in their relationships. I think we even get the picture that they didn't actually look at each other, right? They didn't see each other through God's grace in the gospel. In fact, they saw each other through old perspectives, through the law and through other things. They, thought they saw each other through sinful thinking patterns. And unfortunately, I think the same is true today of us in our modern context in, in the church today. 
We look at each other through a selfish lens rather than a gospel lens. We look at each other and think, man, I I know better than that person. I know better than this person. They don't know what they're talking about. I do. I see things clearly. But yet, we're just like the Jews and the Gentiles. We can't even get out of our own way. We look at each other's history and we think, man, if I, that was my history, I would have done this better at this point than you did. And what we're doing is we're putting up walls to unity. It's just, it can't even happen. But you know what? I don't even think we see these walls because they're in our heart and they're invisible to us. And so we keep each other at a distance and unity is all but impossible. Yeah, we say all the time that our identity is in Christ, and it is. I'm not trying to say that there's a different identity. My identity is in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. If you follow him and you're a disciple of his, your identity is in him. But I wonder if you realize, and if I realize, that also the mind, the heart, the eyes, the ears, all of those things of Jesus, they come with that identity. You can't just put that to the side and say, yeah, I've got his identity, but I don't want anything else of him. Honestly, I find myself more often than I would probably care to admit to you today that I find myself thinking contrary to the way Jesus does. And therefore, I see things apart from the Spirit, not through him. It's so important. We should want more of the gospel brought to bear in our relationships here within the church. Why? Because our relationships are supposed to be what draw people into the church, to draw them into spiritual family, to draw them to God's love. And motivation for these kinds of relationships, motivation for gospel-centered relationships, comes from deep personal experience with the gospel, where you see your history with God's eyes, not some manufacturer of our own. When we see others through the lens of the gospel, when we see others through the vantage point of salvation, we see that God calls his people to unity in Christ. That's what we need to hear today, church. God calls his people to unity in Christ. I realize it's not easy. It's definitely easier to say than to live But that's why it's so important. Jesus didn't just say this out from heaven. He came and lived this unity. He came and lived a life of God for us to see in the flesh. If you have your Bibles, please join me in Romans 11. Our passage will be verses 25 to 32. As you're making your way there... I want to spend a little time talking about the context, because context is very, very important here. We're not starting at Romans 1, and so we're kind of in the middle of the, of the letter here, and so we really need to understand what's going on and what Paul's going to be talking about here. <clears throat> when Paul wrote the letter to the Roman church, the church was largely Gentile, right? So that's all non-Jews. Yes, there were Jews present, no doubt, but... The Gentiles were the majority, and as that majority, we have evidence here that they had become proud, arrogant even towards the Jews. We know that the Jews largely rejected Jesus Christ. They continued in disobedience. They rejected the one that God had sent for them. 
And so it's, we get a sense here that the Gentiles had concluded that God had just given up on the Jews. He just put them aside, and now the Gentiles were God's chosen ones. The Jews no longer enjoyed that special status. And so Paul wrote Romans with a particular focus on their relationships, right? On the relationships between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he also focused on how the issues divided them and what those issues were. Specifically, our text actually sits in a very dense theological section of Romans, and Paul's actually making a kind of a convoluted argument. A little, it's not easy to grasp if you just kind of scan through the text here. But in, in, our, in our passage here in Romans 11, in the larger text of 9 through 11, chapters 9 through 11, Paul's actually wrestling with this discrepancy that he sees, right? On one hand, we have all of the Old Testament promises that God has promised Israel, all, his, all of those things that he's communicated that he will do. And on the other hand, he sees in the first century, the Jews largely rejected Jesus, didn't, didn't believe he was who he said he was. And so Paul looked at this, he said, wait, wait, this needs explanation. We need to understand what's going on. And so Paul sets his focus on Israel, and he asks the question, has God failed them? Are his promises no longer valid? Are they just in the trash? And in chapter 9, Paul starts out by saying, Israel has been chosen by God. He's elected them. They're his people because he chose them. And then in chapter 10, he actually shows that Israel has had some responsibility in their disobedience. So it's not all on God. God. God hasn't failed them. So they have some responsibility for their response to God. And this is important for us because when God's called us to something, we are not without some responsibility to that choosing. God's still calling people. He's called us. We are on mission with him as a church, and so we have some responsibility as a gathered people. And then in chapter 11, he's kind of closing his argument. This is kind of a big grand conclusion, if you will. And Paul emphatically and clearly says that God has not failed Israel, and his promises are indeed valid. So join me in verse 25. It starts this way. Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers and sisters. You can read sisters in there. It's an inclusive term. He goes on and says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so our first point today is that in Christ, we see that God is not done saving people. In Christ, God is not done saving people. Man, Paul says Israel's rejection is a mystery. Seems odd to me. I'm not sure about what you think of that, but when I say the word mystery, I usually stop talking after that. I don't have much to say because it's a mystery, right? How, how could he know? What is he talking about here? How can we know? How can we be sure of this? Well, part of the answer is found in the fact that the English word mystery is probably not the best translation. The word in the original language, excuse me, doesn't, doesn't imply something difficult to understand, but rather something that was once revealed and now, or I'm sorry, once hidden, almost made that really bad, <laughs> once hidden and now revealed, okay? It's very important we understand that at the outset. And so Paul says this mystery, really what you should take away from this is that it's God's redemptive plan, right? It's his plan to redeem people and reconcile them to himself in relationship. And Paul says it has three parts, 
Okay, first, at this time in salvation history, a partial hardening has come over Israel. What does that mean? Well, Paul's communicating that Israel is spiritually blind. They're callous. And so by using this language, Paul's communicating that their heart is hard towards God. Right? They remain unbelieving of what he's done. They remain rejective of who he is and how he's revealed himself to them through his son. And so that's about their heart. Second, during this time of partial hardening, the full number of the Gentiles is coming in to the kingdom of God and being saved by God. Paul says this hardening is temporary. He doesn't actually say how long. He just says it's for a fullness. It's very likely that he actually means a specific time. But don't get caught up in the search for a specific number and lose his focus. Paul's focus is on the manner in which Israel will be saved. That manner will occur after the full number of the Gentiles, those that are non-Jews, right, come into faith and repentance in the gospel. That's the focus here. And then third, at some point in the future, God will save Israel as he's promised. And in verses 26 and 27, Paul actually makes clear now what the first two parts of the mystery have alluded to. And it's interesting here, this, this, uh, this is an Old Testament quotation from Isaiah. Paul actually takes some language from Isaiah 59. He also takes some language from Isaiah 27, and he does something like a, like a composite quotation. It's not word for word. It's highly creative, but don't miss that, though, and, and focus on the fact that it might be from him. It's not. It's definitely spirit-led, and we're going to see that in a second. So let's look at what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, the language there says, the Redeemer will come to Zion. But Paul says the deliverer will come from Zion. So what's the difference? What, what is Paul getting at here? What is he trying to communicate to his readers? What is he trying to communicate to us? Well, remember, Paul said he's revealing a mystery. And this mystery, like we said, it wasn't something difficult to understand. It was something that was once hidden and now revealed. It's so important that we revisit that. And watch this now. The Old Testament itself, while revealing some things that were clear and obvious about who Jesus was, also had things that were not so clear and not so obvious about Jesus. And it's only through the life of Christ, right, the person of Christ, and by the Spirit's leading, that those things become seen. They, they reveal themselves. So important for us, because God is still revealing things to us through the life of Christ and his word. And so what Paul's saying here is that he sees Jesus as the culmination of all God's promises. Right? For Paul, Israel's salvation has already been accomplished. There's nothing more to do. Their salvation awaits them in the future. And so Paul's likely referring here to a Jewish repentance in the future shortly before the second coming of Christ. But who is all Israel in verse 26? I realize that you may not even ask that question. It may not even be something that came into your mind as I read that to you this morning. But scholars and pastors and people and numerous researchers have, have discovered some different things here and interpreted different things here. And so I think it's important for us to wrestle with this text and wrestle for ourselves what God's communicating here, what, what we think's going on. And essentially... All of the study that's been done here has really revealed three possible choices for who Paul's referring to. The first is the church, which means could be all the elect of both Jew and Gentile, all Jews and non-Jews that God has elected. 
It could be the nation of Israel. That's the second choice. All ethnic Jews. Or it could be a third choice, and that is the elect within Israel. Right? So a remnant is a word that Paul uses here in chapter 11. And so this debate really swings between two opposing views, and it's probably best to view this as a spectrum. And so on one side, we have the Reformed view. And the Reformed view simply holds that the church has replaced Israel. It's kind of swallowed it up in a sense. On the other side, we have the dispensational view. And they hold that the church and and Israel are two eternally separate entities. They don't cross over at all. And there's further nuances within these two views. And so it's probably viewed as a spectrum rather than two opposing ends. I warned you this was complex, and I'm not going to be able to solve all of it for you today. But I will share with you my view and why I think it's important. In my view, I think Paul's referring to a remnant or the elect within Israel. That's the third option that I outlined for you. Why? Because this is the immediate context of our passage. Remember what I said. Paul's taking up this question of are God's promises still valid? Is what God said still worth putting stock in? And so Paul repeatedly makes a distinction between the nation as a whole and the elect. And so I don't think it's easily dismissed here that he's not juxtaposing two different people groups to show that it's God's plan and God's been using people to show his mercy. I think Paul could be referring to the church most definitely here. In some of his other writings in Galatians, he actually refers to the church as the Israel of God. In other writings, he actually focuses on Abraham's true seed, right? All those that God would bless through Abraham is not a matter of ethnic descent. It's a matter of faith. And don't we know that to be true today? So I realize this can hit you as a very academic-sounding context and very heavy theologically. But don't get wrapped up in that and miss the focus you might say, well, what does this mean then, Kevin? What, what, what does this mean for me? How do I apply this to my life? And to that, I would ask you, do you think you're special? Yeah, I just pulled a Jesus on you. It's completely quiet in here, but I answered a question with another question. But I'm absolutely serious. Do you think you're special? You know, I remember I have two sons, uh, Micah and Braden. They're both teenagers. Uh, I've long forgotten how to speak teenager, so pray for me if you would. But I remember Georgette and I, when they were both born, we remember the day so vividly, and we thought, man, they are so, so special. And they are. We love them dearly as gifts from God. And as I was preparing for this message today, I came across this article written by David Mathis. He's an executive editor for DesiringGod.org. And he takes up this, this idea of our specialness. And, he, and I agree with him 100%. He says, it's a very early message we hear from our parents, influential adults in our life, right, that our parents have friends of the family, they come and they say, you're so special. We even see it just littered throughout children's books, right? As, we, as children, as we grow up and we read books, we see this. And all, every single one of us, we have all heard this message, you are special. And believe me when I tell you, I'm not here to say your parents were wrong. I'm not here to say my parents were wrong. I'm not here to say that influential adults, mentors, were wrong to tell you that. I'm not here to say that we should just start a new movement and cancel all children's books or all children's books publishers. I realize maybe if you're a fan of cancel culture, I just busted your bubble really bad. But that's not what I want. 
there is an element of truth to the fact that we are special, and I'm glad that you answered audibly because we are special. I mean, let's just take a sampling of God's word. Let's just look at a cursory level. Like, what does God say? Psalm 139, 14 says this, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. All human beings carry God's image, right? We are God's image bearers. That's Genesis chapter one. So right out of the gate, we see that we are special because God has put his likeness in us. That is absolutely true and absolutely true today. 1 Peter 1.12 says the angels, watch this, actually marvel at the grace God has given to us through Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, let that spin around in your mind for a second. And the kicker, I'm glad you're sitting down. As Christians, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you heard that. God, the Spirit, dwells in you. I mean, this sounds like a pretty good case for us being special, doesn't it? It does to me. All of that is true. But if we're being honest, I think when we think of our specialness, we often think of it in comparison to others. Right? We often think that we're special compared to this person or that person because of our gifts, because of our talents, but because of our achievements as well, because of our successes, dare I say even because of our faith. And I think that's where we go wrong. See, the truth is none of us are special in the ways that we like to tell ourselves in the silence of our own company when absolutely no one's around except you and God and me and God. Right? I think it's in those times where we often our thoughts betray ourselves and we're led by our flesh to think we know better than others. God's chosen me for blessing, but you, not so much. God's chosen me to do this and that, but you, step aside. Remember what I said in the beginning, these barriers are really invisible to us. But make no mistake, I'm not talking about out in the world. It's easy to think that that's where we should put the focus of what I'm saying here. But see, Paul was talking to the church. He was talking to Jews and Gentiles within the church at Rome. And so that's who Paul's talking to. That's who we should focus on. That's, we should focus on us, our relationships. I think it's in these relationships within the church that we often demonstrate our own spiritual blindness, our own callousness in our heart to God's work. Why? We selfishly compare. Or we're just myopically, we're just preoccupied with ourselves. All we can see is the six inches in front of our face. We only see our lives. See, that was the Gentiles' problem. The truth is the Gentiles were most definitely special. But they were not special by themselves, not in comparison to the Jews. The Gentiles were special with the Jews. Why? The gospel brought them together. The gospel made them one in Christ. Jesus shed blood and made them one people. He's made us one people. This is the truth. You ever stop and ask yourself, how much relational brokenness exists in the church today because of selfish comparison? Because of preoccupation with ourselves. That was what's going on here. 
That's an important question we need to ask. But I think the next one's way more important. And that is, what is it doing to our witness? Right? Who are we showing Jesus to be? If he's really made us one people, why all the arguments? Don't get me wrong. Some of the arguments need to happen. But they should be saturated in grace and love and a desire for the benefit and the goodness of others. I think if we're honest, too much of this is one-sided. Why? Because of the same thing the Gentiles did here. It's just a strict focus on themselves. So how do we guard against something good becoming something sinful? How do we ensure that our faith in Christ and the specialness we enjoy as a result of our faith and our identity in Christ, how do we ensure that that doesn't become self-righteousness? See, Paul saw the Gentiles as so preoccupied with their own status in the church because of why, how they viewed their salvation in comparison to the Jews. Right? They saw themselves, they saw their faith as superior to the Jews. It's almost as if they were like, Jews, you guys stunk up the place. You've messed up royally. We're here to take over. We've got this. Step aside. The answer to avoiding self-righteousness in our relationships, I think it's more simpler than we think. It's humility. But not just a humility that we've drawn up. It's a humility patterned after Jesus. Why? Because even Jesus emptied himself of self-prerogative. It says this in Philippians 2. He didn't take the form of God to something to be grasped. He took the form of a servant. And so in that, we see that humility requires us not to overemphasize our specialness for the sake of neglecting our brokenness. We can't just focus on a one-sided issue here. Because humility is about honestly assessing ourselves, not in light of our own eyes, but in light of God's holiness. Humility is about shutting down this tendency in us to compare ourselves one to another and to size people up on some scale that has nothing to do with God's love and nothing to do with his word. God, he has called us to unity in Christ, not merely the ceasing of hostilities. Did you hear that? It's not some false humility. It's not some faux humility where it, We just don't admit our own brokenness. Our relationships are supposed to act as a beacon to God's love, to draw people into family. Because we know that God is not done saving people. He's still working in us. How can we conclude then that he's not working in others? But number two, in Christ, we also see that history is marked by God's sovereign action. In Christ, we see that history is marked by God's sovereign action. Verse 28 through 32, let's see what Paul says there. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy 
because of their, Israel's disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Beautiful. 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Man, this is jam-packed. Paul says so much here, and so I want to kind of take this one step at a time. And I think Paul does that for us by writing things in like what seem to be contrasting pairs. And he takes the gospel here, and he actually uses it as a lens to look at both Jewish history and Gentile history. But notice, it's coming from one perspective. See, Paul's communicating in 28 and 29 that he's still unfolding this mystery. It's, it's still got depth to it. And so he wants to help them unpack just the sovereignty of God here. So Paul's communicating that God is, un, is opposed to unbelieving Israel, but he still loves and he still cherishes them. Why? Because he elected them. He chose them. He promised to bless them. He promised to love them. And it wasn't by their effort. But because of Israel's rejection, because of their disobedience to the gospel, watch this now. God used their disobedience to extend his gracious and loving mercy to a brand new people group, to the Gentiles. And so what Paul's doing here is he's showing us there was a divine purpose in Israel's disobedience. That divine purpose was to save the rest of humanity. There is some debate here when, when Paul says the word election in 28. <clears throat> and just to put it simply, election is God's choosing of people. And to be sure, election is definitely a biblical concept. But based on the text here and the context of what Paul's been saying, I believe the reference here is just general. He's talking about corporate election in a sense. And the reason why I believe that is because the force of what he's communicating has to do with why God continues to love Israel. That why is because he promised to do it. God never goes back on his promises. We can't lose sight of the fact that Paul's focus is how salvation history has unfolded. And it's unfolded according to God's plan, his sovereign will, his action, not any one person. And I think in 29, Paul actually confirms this. Understanding by saying that the gifts God gives and the calling he places on people's lives is never rescinded. Paul says irrevocable. And I think it's beautiful. Listen to what one commentator says about this verse. He says, the reason why God continues to love rebellious Israel is that he's not unstable or unreliable. When he decides to choose and bless people, he never regrets it. Man, how many are thankful for that? God never regrets blessing you. He never regrets loving you. And don't think for a nanosecond that God ever regrets sending Jesus Christ to take all of your filth, all of my filth, all of our sin, and put it on himself and die for each and every one of us. Not for one second does God regret that. Man, let that sink down deep. Because there's so much power for life in that simple truth. But Paul goes on in 30 and 31. He yet makes another contrast of Jew and Gentile history. Man, this, this mystery has got some depth to it. In 30, Paul says the Gentiles were once disobedient, right? And it wasn't by their effort. 
that the gospel came to them. And then the other side, Paul actually says and clarifies how God's going to save Israel in the future. And it's not going to be by their effort. It's going to be by the mercy that he showed the Gentiles. Do you see the emphasis on God's action? On his sovereign will? On his sovereign plan throughout all salvation history? God is absolutely free of any constraints of any kind for all time. He's not bound by what we think. He's not bound by what we do. He's not bound by what we say, what we pontificate about. But personal experience is ever so powerful. And Paul uniquely here uses the sinful history of both Jew and Gentile. So if you're wondering, that's everybody. That's us. To show that it was God's grace to them through the gospel. So now, 32. Remember what we said, chapter 11 is this conclusion Paul's making to his argument. And everything he's been saying has been really driving to this point. And it's a very concise verse, but man, is it powerful. He's built everything he's said up until this moment to say what he says in this verse. And Paul's saying that God has had a divine purpose throughout all humanity's disobedience, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. It was his sovereign plan to demonstrate his righteous mercy to all humanity for all time. So it doesn't depend on human effort. It doesn't depend on us. It only depends on God, the only one who truly has mercy. Some actually believe that Paul is teaching universal salvation here. I know we're uncovering a lot of debates, a lot of investigation here, um, but it's important we wrestle with these things. I think that the crux of the argument for universal salvation is based on the belief that Paul could mean two different people groups again when he says all in the beginning of 32 and then all at the end. And that's kind of similar to the argument with the Israel one that we talked about further. For myself, for my own study of this, I don't believe Paul's teaching universal salvation here. And the reason why is because to believe that would seem to glaringly disregard the focus of his argument. Right? Paul's argument and his focus has been how salvation history has unfolded and how Israel will be saved in the future. His focus has also included how God, not us, has used different people groups in the world and used their disobedience, the things that they probably don't want to focus on, and how those things have played out in his plan. The focus is on God, his action. He's not aloof. People. He's not off in a distance, unconnected to what's going on. He's very much alive and well. And if anything, this season has taught me that God's probably up to 10,000, 10 million, 10 billion things, and I might be aware of two of them. As one commentator beautifully puts it, the purpose here is not to teach that all people without exception are recipients of God's mercy, but all people without distinction are beneficiaries of his saving grace. So beautiful. Well, just like our first point, I think this second one is so incredibly relevant for us today. And I think, just like the first point, I want to ask you a question. How do you see your own history? How do you see your own disobedience? Do you look at it like the Gentiles did with revisionist eyes? 
I know that's really convicted me as I was studying this. I, man, I love to celebrate those mountaintops. I love to celebrate those things in between that maybe don't make me look great, but they're really not all that bad compared to others. And the things that are terrible, man, I want to keep those back here, and I don't want anybody to see those. You know, some of you may know me, um, and you know a little bit about my life, and, you know, I was thinking about this and talking to uh, someone between services, and I really feel convicted to kind of share this with you. And, you know, probably six, seven years ago, I had a dream job. Everything was going fantastic. I was making more money than I could ever imagine in a job. Uh, I was living in Boston and working for a really great law firm, uh, and the future was bright. But there was something going on in here that I really, really didn't want to share with people. You know, it's easy to talk about mountaintops that we're on, and it sounds like when the way I described it to you that I was experiencing and enjoying a lot of success, and I was, but there was a whole lot of darkness here. And through that time, through really a mountaintop experience, God showed me that, Kev, there's a lot of superficiality here. There's a lot of self-righteousness, a lot of self-sufficiency. Yeah, you acknowledge me, you go to church, but you're more sufficient in yourself than you are in me. Right? When we don't view our lives through the vantage point that God has for us, I think we're in danger. We're in danger of really making an idol out of ourselves. And I think that was my problem with, with distinct clarity. My problem was me. See, the Gentiles had lost sight of God's saving work in their life. And it caused them to look at people, look at their Jewish brothers and sisters in a way that divided them. Think about that. What they saw, how they looked at people, actually brought disunity in to their life. See, the truth is, God uses things in all of us and all of the things in all of us that we would love to forget, throw away, or flat out deny. But he uses those to bring transformational change in us and show his glorious, sovereign mercy to the world. But I know for me, I don't always like to focus on that because it's really humbling. It doesn't make me look very good at all. But I think that's the point. It's not to condemn us. In this same letter here, in chapter 8, Paul says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. See, God doesn't look at your disobedience and judge you on it. If you're in Christ, that's gone away. And he sees you as he sees his son. The question is, do we see that? See, I think sometimes in our own walks with Christ, and our own faith journeys, there's too much focus on us. There's too much six inches in front of our face vision. We don't see past ourselves. We don't see past our mindsets. We don't see past our own words, our own perspectives. And like I said, when we look at our own sinful history, at our own lives, and even the lives of others, through anything other than God's vantage point, we make ourselves an idol. And the first and the biggest casualty in idolatry, you can bet it's unity and relationship. You know, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, 
Tim Keller explains that idolatry is not this ancient world problem. It's very much alive in our modern context. Why? Because it's a matter of our heart, right? We just get back to this invisible thing that God sees with vivid clarity and we don't always see. Listen to Keller's definition of an idol. He says, an idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and watch this, identity. See, idols are never bad things. Idols are good things. They could even be things that God blesses us with. We see that in the narrative of Scripture. But they're good things that we have made ultimate things. That's why they become an idol. We've made them into something. Keller goes on, he says, Though we may give lip service to Jesus as our example and inspiration, we are still looking to ourselves and our own moral striving. And our own effort for salvation. What's my point? My point is is that our overindulgent focus on ourselves and our ninja-like grip on our personal freedoms drive us to become spiritually blind of our responsibilities to one another. See, church, the freedom that we have been given in Christ is not a freedom to live as we see fit. It's a freedom with responsibility to serve one another, to suffer with one another, and to bear responsibility for one another. This is what we've been called to. But when we're preoccupied with ourselves, we can't see it. So as we conclude, I want to step back into our text for just a moment here. And just reiterate, Paul saw the posture, right, their, their relational posture towards the Gentiles as disruptive to the church. And it wasn't in line with how they should view their Jewish brothers and sisters. See, for Paul, the gospel was and the gospel is the difference maker. The gospel motivated Paul, as it should motivate us, to see people a certain way. Do you hear that? Salvation, our salvation, our shared salvation in Christ comes with a perspective. It's the perspective of unity in relationship, in spiritual family. Church, God has called us to unity in Christ through his shed blood on the cross. And together in Christ, we see vividly that God is not done saving people, right? He's still moving in us. He's still redeeming us. He's still transforming us. But not just us, everybody that's around you. So how can we then say we know what's going on? Our relationships should reflect that truth. And our relationships should reflect that it's God's work in us, not our own doing. But there's even something more. The revelation of this mystery, the revelation of God's redemptive plan to Paul by the Spirit led him to see that the only sensible response is praise and worship of God. And because it's so beautifully worded, I want to end with Eugene Peterson's translation of Paul's conclusion in the message. He says this, Is there anyone around who can explain God? Anyone smart enough to tell him what to do? 
anyone who has done him such a huge favor that God has to ask his advice? Everything comes from him. Everything happens through him. Everything ends up in him. Always glory. Always praise. Yes, yes, yes. Father, we thank you from the bottoms of our heart, Father, from all that is in us that you are sovereign and you have lavishly poured out your grace upon us in Jesus Christ. Indeed, Father, it is a gift that keeps on giving. But Father, I know that we are fickle people. We have not arrived and so we need to be reminded of what you're doing so that we can be faithful participants. We can be used by you to reach all those that you are seeking that are lost. That is your desire to reconcile people back to you because we are your creation. We are the apple of your eye. God, may the truth of these words sink down deep into our hearts and may they generate in us a motivation to live a life worthy of the gospel, worthy of Jesus Christ. May they give you glory, Father, because you are due that glory. You are magnificent. You are marvelous. You are beautiful to us. And we declare that truth today. You have called us to yourself, and we want to be faithful to that calling. And so that faithfulness requires us to see each other through salvation, through your eyes. May we come up to you and see as you see. Pray all this in Jesus' name.